Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. This, this year has been an interesting journey for me. I think for us as a congregation too, we, we started out the year deciding that we, having studied the whole Holy Spirit and how to connect with him, how to get to know him in the, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, we started looking at how it is that we could communicate with God. And we studied prayer, and we looked at Jesus' uh, example, and we looked at the lessons that Jesus taught overtly about prayer, and then we also dug into the experience of other Christians. How many of you enjoyed the couple of weeks that we had Katie Schneider up here talking to us? Yeah, very much so, about, about how she has learned to connect with God in some, in some incredibly powerful ways. And I would say to you that I don't think it's necessary to sustain injury or tragedy at the level that Katie has to be able to connect with God intimately if we'll listen and learn. So for the last several months, we've been, we've been talking about prayer, and then the last three weeks, we talked about unanswered prayer, and I got lots of feedback from you guys. I have not taught you everything there is to know about prayer, because I don't know everything there is to know about prayer. So you know what I'm going to do about it? I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep drawing close to him. I'm going to keep reading the scriptures about it. I'm going to read the testimonies of other Christians. And when uh, I realize that I've got some more riches that I can share with you that I don't yet possess, then I'll come back to you and we'll talk about prayer some more, okay? But starting today and moving forward from here throughout the summer, I want to start a new sermon series that I am also excited about. Um, if you know me, it doesn't take long for you to hear some, some story about elk hunting or some uh, story about the Kansas City Chiefs, two of the uh, passions in my life. Thank you for not booing either of those. I appreciate it. Uh, when you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan at the level that my family is uh, and, and my extended clan, uh, I would say that our other religion is Kansas City sports. Uh, you don't have a choice about who you are going to support when you're born into my mom's side of the family. You are Kansas City fans, and that is that. And along with it comes this whole um, uh, kind of legend that, of things that you have to memorize and know that go along with it. So you know not only your favorite team, but the teams that you must hate with a white-hot holy hatred. Okay? And among them, first on the list, Green Bay Packers. And are, you agree. Okay. I was going to have the ushers remove you over that. Okay. We have one in the crowd who agrees with me about the uh, stinking Green Bay Packers. And here's, here's the reason why. It's because in the first ever Super Bowl, it was Chiefs versus Packers. And the Packers won. It was, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, one people, one people, one person made a sad face at me. The others are mocking. But that's part of the deal. You have to hate the Raiders because the Raiders are the Raiders. And you, uh, and you have to hate Denver because they're, not. hey, listen, sermon's one-way communication, okay? Uh, you have to hate the Denver Broncos because of all that's right and holy and good. And, um, and then the, the stinking, stinking Packers, yeah. But, you know, the Packers beat the Chiefs, and we know how they did it is because they had one of the best coaches ever. His name was Vince Lombardi. And on his very first day as the head coach, I've told some of you this story before, on, on his very first day as coach of the Green Bay Packers, he had a team meeting, called everybody together. And he held up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. In case they didn't already know, this is a football. Of course they already knew. What was he doing? He, he went on to give a great speech in which he told them that championship teams are built by mastering the fundamentals. It's not about trick plays. It's not about showy stuff. It's about being able to block and being able to tackle and being able to run the ball and throw the ball and catch the ball. Very small set of skills that must be mastered. And if you master those things, you will beat teams again and again and again. You'll be able to earn a championship. Um, whenever the Green Bay Packers have fallen away from their long winning streaks, you know why it is? Because they quit focusing on the fundamentals. The church in America today is not on a winning streak. It just isn't. It just isn't. And I think it's because we have forgotten to focus on the fundamentals of our faith. 
We've spent the last 20, 30 years, 40 years uh, focusing on all kinds of different things. We have focused on rules that we thought people ought to keep, or we've focused on arguing about why you don't have to keep any rules to be a Christian. We have focused on arguments about whether you should be conservative or you should be liberal. We have argued about which denomination uh, is righter or wronger than the others. We have focused on all kinds of things other than the fundamentals. And because of it, the church in America finds itself in a losing streak instead of a winning one. However, as we read the scriptures, as I read the scriptures, it's pretty clear to me that over the span of human history, the church is going to end up as a championship team. We are, this isn't about us winning and other people losing. This is about us being part of that great stream of the will of God that is working its way out through human history that will end with everybody recognizing him for the glorious, good, and loving being that he is. And everybody who gets it and goes there willingly wins. The church is going to wrap up a long winning streak at some point in history. In order to to wrap up a winning streak, you know what you have to do? You got to start one. You have to start a winning streak. And the way that you turn a losing streak into a winning streak is you focus on the fundamentals like Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers did. And so, beginning today through the rest of the summer, I'm going to teach you the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Some of you are going, yeah, but I already know this stuff. Yeah, so did the Green Bay Packers. They knew what a football was. It wasn't news to them. Supposed to tackle the guy who runs with the ball. They knew that. That the fundamentals aren't for just beginners. Therefore, all of the players on the field. You may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but I'm ready for some more advanced stuff. I don't doubt that many of you are. But let me just tell you this. The power band in Christianity is not in the, 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 the deep secrets and, and esoteric doctrines that are for the, uh, for the mature the real power band in Christianity isn't even in the stuff of, of um, spiritual warfare and how to do battle in the spiritual realm. It's not. The real power in Christianity is in its foundation, and its cornerstone is Jesus Christ and him crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. That's where all of our life and all of our power comes from as the followers of Jesus Christ. So we're going to go back to the foundations. Jesus isn't the only foundation, but uh, the chief cornerstone for sure, as the scriptures say. And uh, beginning today and for the next several weeks through the end of the summer, we're going to put in place, once again, the foundation that it takes to have a winning streak that ends up with God getting much glory and the church enjoying the ride to victory with him. So you with me? Good. I hear one little one. That's a yes. That little one said yes, okay? So uh, the, the, the approach that I'm going to take is this. When Christians have seemed to get it right down through the ages, when they've focused on the fundamentals, and when they have agreed with one another, that's very important. When they have focused on the fundamentals, the foundations, and they have agreed with one another, the church has done very well. And there's this body of work that historically has has helped to bring the church back again and again and again to a place of commitment to the foundations and agreement with one another. It's called the Apostles' Creed. The song that we sang earlier, I believe, it's one of, I don't know how many different versions of the Apostles' Creed that have been set to music over the hundreds and now um, well over a thousand, nearly 2,000 years that the Apostles' Creed has been in existence. There have been Christians saying, memorize this as they talk to their children. They've said, commit this to memory as they have talked to brand new adult believers. They have also taken it to heart themselves so that when anyone asks them, so what do you Christians believe anyway? They can say, well, here's kind of a boiled down synopsis of the thing. And in one minute's time, you're able to explain here are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. The creed is is an incredible piece of church history because uh, it's old. I mean, it's old, old. You know why they call it the Apostles' Creed? 
It's because the very earliest accounts of the existence of this, this document, which isn't, it's not from the Bible, it's, it's based on biblical truths, but you won't find the, there's no chapter in the Bible that is the Apostles' Creed. But from the earliest accounts that we have it, uh, of it in, in writings outside of the Bible, the earliest folks who knew this, this creed believed that Jesus' very first followers, the apostles, penned it or some part of it themselves. Now, that's an incredible claim that might be false, quite frankly. And so we had to do a little more historical work, and, and here's what we found out. In the year 390, okay, so we're at the, almost the year 400. This is about 350 years after Jesus died um, was resurrected and went to heaven. About 350 years later, somebody wrote about this, this creed. And so they uh, then shared the creed, and as, as we read it, as scholars read it, they said, we have older documents that say this exact thing word for word. They just didn't call it the Apostles' Creed. And so they looked back, and we have one written version of it before the year 200. We have another one that dates as early as 140 B.C., so just about one century after Jesus made his grand exit. And so already we've, we've closed the gap down to the, the possibility that this thing was written by the apostles themselves. I'm not going to tell you, Peter, James, John, Matthew, those guys absolutely wrote it. I'm not going to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you that the things that they taught, the very first followers of Jesus, were still fresh on their minds, fresh on their lips, fresh on their hearts. And so for almost 2,000 years, the followers of Jesus have come together around these foundation stones, come together, unified, around these foundational, steadying kind of truths. And if they guided the church for 2,000 years, they can guide you and me today. And they're going to guide the rest of our summer. And so I want to begin by um, taking a look at the creed. And, and each week, we're going, to, we're going to end up reading. And listen, it's not reciting. Okay, get that word out of your vocabulary. Just like I, I hope that you're not reciting the Lord's Prayer after our series on prayer. You don't recite prayers. You don't say prayers. You just talk to your dad, right? This is not simply reciting something that pr- the preacher thinks is important. This act, whenever Christians down through the, the ages have read these truths together or ended up memorizing them and saying them together, it's an act that the church calls confession. Not as in, I confess my sins, but I confess what is true. I confess what I really believe. I confess where my heart and my mind come together in union with God. And so, I want to welcome you in a few moments to confess the Apostles' Creed with me, and we'll do that each week. But first, I want to talk about what it means to believe, because the Creed starts out with those words, I believe, sometimes Christians say them together, we believe, because they realize that this Christian faith is bigger than any one person's belief, and it's it's the shared thing that gives it its power. But it begins, the creed does properly, with the statement, I believe. And before we go any further, I think that we first have to understand what it really means to believe. And because you and I were born where we were, when we were, in history, after the, the development of the scientific method and the development of the laws of logic, and, and because we live in Western culture that swallowed these, those things whole and says, they are truth, you and I generally look at anything, and we try to apply math and science kind of reasoning to it and say, if you can give me facts, I will accept them as facts, right? You do your life that way a lot, don't you? Yeah, absolutely you do. It's worked out pretty well for the Western world. How do you think that Western civilization rose to the top of the heap? One of the incredible, incredible factors historically that helped, that helped the, the Western world um, come to a place of prominence over other nations was that we began to think in orderly fashion. Yeah. Well, the, the business of investigating via scientific method is one way of coming to knowledge, but there are other ways. And belief or faith is another way of knowing, okay? We've got, we've got math, science, reasoning here, and not opposed to it, but right alongside it, we also have 
faith, which is another ability to know. Let me help you see kind of the difference here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on logic and, and scientific method because you, you already get it. You, you live that way every single day. When it comes to the business of believing, um, how best to put this? There is a way to know that isn't based upon gathering a great big giant pile of facts to the point that you've removed any ability to argue, okay? In in other words, believing isn't dependent upon proving, okay? Believing isn't dependent upon proving. By the way, almost everything that you think that you have proven or has been proven to you, you believe it because there's almost always some missing gap that you have to stretch and step over. It's just that reason and logic have shrank that enough that you can do it. But when we Christians talk about believing, here's what we mean. It doesn't mean that we have sent our fundamentalist friends to fill up their notebook with all of the facts so that we can go, ha, to all of the unbelievers in the world. It means that having examined truth and having searched our hearts before it, we have gained an internal witness that helps us come to knowledge in a different way than math and science ever could, that brings a balance to our personhood and which is no less real than concrete facts. We believe. I believe doesn't mean it's not equal to I know. I believe says there's another way of coming to an understanding. That probably still seems a little bit fuzzy, so let me help you with it. The Old Testament people of God, the, uh, the Israelites, uh, spoke the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew language, um, I'm, I'm no Hebrew expert, so I'm reporting to you my studies, okay? The Hebrew language um, is, in, in the scheme of things, a relatively primitive language. And so it uses a lot of word pictures to, uh, to, to paint the, the picture so that you can understand. And the Hebrew word... For, um, for trust, which is another uh, synonym for the word believe, means a chair. Now, wait a minute, Cliff, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to work together very well. All right, follow me. To believe and to trust, those, those words are synonymous in our New Testament. It gets translated, uh, depending on, on the passage, the very same word, to believe or to trust. But the question is, then, what does it mean to trust? And trust means chair, as in put your full weight down on it. You guys, you guys know how to do this. You know how to believe. You know how to trust, because you're doing it right now. Almost nobody is standing and listening to the sermon today right? You just came in here. You saw a thing that's shaped like a chair. You assumed that chairness is the same everywhere. It's very dependable. So whenever you see a chair, you just walk over to it and you just cast your full weight down upon it. You did it. None of you came in and shook the pew and pressed down on it and gave it just one of these to make sure that it held up. You just came in and you know what chairs are because chairs do what chairs do. You came in, you just plopped down and what do you know? You were right. Your faith in chairness held you up off of the ground so far, right? Yeah. To believe or to trust, then from that that Old Testament viewpoint, is to take a look at God and decide that he's got the strength, the horsepower, the predictability and dependability enough that I can cast my full weight upon him and he'll hold me up. Remember the temptation of Jesus? Um, uh, Some of you are probably familiar with that story. One of the temptations during his great period of temptation, uh, the devil came to him and said, listen, I'm going to quote the Bible to you and see if that'll tempt you. Which part? Oh, the part where it says um, um, that God, this is the devil speaking to Jesus, uh, that God will not allow you to to strike your foot against a stone. In other words, God's not going to let you fall and get broken. So he takes Jesus to the top of the, of the, the temple and says, why don't you just jump off? 
And then God will send angels to rescue you, and everybody will go, well, that must be God, and, and you can be on your way. Jesus didn't do that, not because he didn't believe that God would catch him, but because he said, it's not a good thing to mock God and put him to the test. And yet, he taught us, you can trust him. Don't put him to the test defiantly, but day to day, day in and day out, you see a chair, you can throw yourself on it. It'll hold you up off the floor. And when you come across God, you can trust him to bear you up. The creed begins not by saying, here's the things that we know for certain. Here are the things that science has revealed to us about God. It starts with the confession, I believe. Uh, Maybe another way of, of thinking of believing is betting. Now I know. You're all wonderful, uh, traditional Nazarenes, so you never gamble. I know that. Okay, the laughers are confessing. That's what that's about, right? Um, Another way of understanding uh, this, this concept of believing or trusting is betting. The question is, what are you betting against and what are you betting on? Now, if here you tell me which teams and which horses... Um, I can help you and your family, okay? But if, uh, if instead you're, you're talking to me about betting two things, your eternal well-being and your current sense of peace and purpose and reputation, then you are faithing, you are trusting, you are believing. You're, you're betting these things. You're betting your future well-being in eternity and you're betting your current sense of peace your current sense of purpose in this world, and how you are known and regarded by other people. That's what you're betting when you choose to confess, I believe in God. We'll talk about those things more in weeks to come. But but as we begin today, I want to assure you of this, that if you choose to cast your full weight down upon the God that we see described in Scripture and described in the Creed, you are going to find out in the near future that there is a peace that will come and become the rule of the day. Can it ever be interrupted in your life? Absolutely, when you lose focus. But there is a peace that is a relative constant for the people of God who have learned to trust him and have decided to put their full weight down upon him. There is peace for those of us who believe. You will also find in the, in the near future, if you make a decision here today to cast your full weight upon God, that your life suddenly has a purpose that you may not have realized before. You may have guessed, why am I here? The, the other big questions that are all um, different versions of the same big question, what's the meaning of life? What am I supposed to be doing? Why am I still here? Why wasn't I the one killed in the tragic accident? All those, all those things are questions that amount to the same question of what is the purpose of my life? And the people who have decided to put their full weight upon God in time find answers to that question. Your life will have purpose. Now listen, if you were... If you're a little sketchy on the peace thing, work hard on purpose. And when your life suddenly has purpose, you'll find that opens the floodgate to peace in your life. I'm also telling you that if you put your full weight down, lean on, trust God, that you're betting your reputation. Because you have friends who think that there's only one way to know, and it is the logic, science, math way. And that those of us who trust God, who believe in God, are fools or gullible or shockingly primitive in our way of thinking. So just a little truth into advertising today. If you're checking out this whole God, church, Jesus, faith, Christianity thing, you're betting three things. You're betting, in in the moment, you're betting that you can have peace, 
You're betting that your life will find purpose, and you're betting that your reputation may get a little bit questionable, okay? I can't prove it to you in this life. We'll all have to compare notes after we die about whether leaning on God actually delivers on the well-being in eternity. But as we start today, looking at what it means to believe, casting our full weight, leaning on the idea that there is a God, understand that it's a calculated risk, and suddenly we are the first church of the Nazarene gambling team. We're making shirts, people. And that's how Cliff lost his job. Um, I mentioned that down through the ages, I mean lots of ages, many, 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 many centuries, we know that at least by the year 700, the, uh, the church was in the practice of saying, you need to be saying the creed together. You need to be confessing the creed together by the year 700. We had it in existence before that, but by the year 700, we know it was established practice that Christians in the West in particular were saying, I believe and these following things. And so I'd ask you, let's put it on the screen, and I would ask you if, uh, if maybe you would just join me in confessing our faith this morning. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now look at that, uh, that slide. You see, we've got the word Catholic up there, and it's a small C, and it's got an asterisk after it. That's because of the first NAS um, no freaking out policy. I forgot, to, if I, I forgot to mention this to you. There is a no freaking out policy here at First Church of the Nazarene in Lewiston because rather than just reacting to things, we, uh, we take a look at them and see what we can learn. And this word Catholic, uh, small c, or quite frankly, capital C, means universal. Okay? So when the, when the Catholic Church calls itself the Catholic Church, it's the universal church. They were, historically, they made the claim, we are the one true church of Jesus Christ, and there is no group outside of us who is true to him. That's what, that's what the, the Catholics meant when they chose that, that description for what is now a one denomination of Christianity. But we confess that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and we'll talk more about this later. It's a sermon for a different Sunday. We believe that the Catholics are right. There is only one true church, and anyone who believes gets to be a part of it, regardless of where you go to church. Okay? So, you're, you're with me on the no freakout policy, and we can, from week to week, we can confess our faith in the Holy Catholic Church without having a slow burn and having to come talk to me in the foyer, right? All right, good. Because uh, lots of Christians have been able to do that down through time. Well, you have just confessed your faith in, the, in, in Christianity. And uh, while Christianity certainly has some beliefs in addition to these, these are the ones that the church has decided down through the ages are the real foundation stones. They're the ones that really uh, we can come together upon. And if we find ourselves divided on these, we need to find a way to come back together because these are the truths that have guided us uh, faithfully and can do so. But as you began your confession, you said in full voice, I believe in God. And uh, any person who doesn't know you, lots of people who live, oh, say, halfway around the world or in large metro areas within a few hours of us, if they heard you and I say today, I believe in God, many of them would ask us, well, which one? And that, my friends, is a reasonable question. 
Because many people down through time, and still today, uh, believe in a god, one or another. Some believe in many, many gods. I I got to to do some work in Fiji years ago, and uh, there are a great number of Hindu people in Fiji, and the, the people with similar beliefs live in, in villages together, and everywhere that you went, as you drove around Fiji, as you came to a Hindu village, you would know that it was a Hindu village because there would be a flag flying, but not the same flag over every Hindu village. All Hindu villages had flags flying, so you knew it was a Hindu village, but you knew which kind of Hindu based on which color of flag and which god they had on that flag. So one Hindu would look at another one and, and ask, well, which 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 God do you follow? And the place where we end up doing the bulk of our work followed this little monkey God. He's an interesting, interesting being. When we say that we believe in God, it's a reasonable thing for others to say, which God do you believe in? And the Christians have answered that um, in, in the same way again and again and again, as implied in, in our creed. We believe in the God who is described in the pages of the Bible. And while uh, this is a fairly uh, big undertaking to read this whole book with this, why did they make Bible pages thinner than any other book? So it doesn't look as big as it is, right? I mean, this is, this is a beast of a book. It's gigantic. And because it was written, uh, oh, over a span of 1,500 years by people who spoke a different language than English and didn't have a Western worldview, this is a tough read. This is a tough read. The Bible is a very tough read. And, uh, and so rather than us just saying to people, well, once you decide you're going to believe, why don't you just take this and read it and see what kind of a God you, you uh, come to believe in, Christians have uh, together said, let's study it together so that we can compare notes and compare notes not only with, the, with one another's understanding, but with those who went before us and see what we can come to understand about this God who shows up in the Bible. And uh, I would boil all of this all of this down to a handful of statements about God that certainly will undersell him, okay? I can't tell you everything about God. But I would say this, that, uh, that I think it's a, it's a fair statement to say that the Bible describes God as a spiritual being who has always existed. That just tripped the breaker in somebody's mind. Most of us, when we think about eternity, having no beginning or no ending, we look and we think, oh, I can kind of sort of understand how time might go on forever and ever and ever. And I kind of like the notion of getting to live forever and ever and ever. But most of us have a hard time when we turn around, look back down the timeline and say, there was no beginning? (laughs) We will have to talk about this later. (laughs) There's no beginning. There's this God who always existed. The Bible paints the picture that the, the, the God who is who's listed as the God over all other gods is a God who is a spiritual being. He has always, always existed, and he is the one who created the universe. Everything that exists outside of God himself was created by that God that is described in the Bible. So the first thing that we know about him is that he's eternally existent. The second thing that we know about him is that he's a creator. We're going to talk more about that next week as the creed goes on to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We'll talk about that a little more next week. But uh, this God who is a spirit being, who always existed and who created, created for a reason. The, the God described in the Bible is, again and again and again, said to be a loving being. In fact, so loving that, that he's, the, the two words become synonymous. John, that, the guy that we talked about earlier, had that vision. Yeah. John said, God is love. He didn't say love is God, like this fluffy feeling of love is just the the best and most powerful thing. He's saying the God, the spiritual being who's existed for all of eternity is the very embodiment and expression of love. If you've ever wanted to be loved, go find this God and get to know him. And, And he created because he was loving now get this, because this is really important. This is, this is 101 on the character of God, all right? Very, very basics. But, 
most important. Basics mean most important truth, by the way. God created not because he was lonely and wanted people to love him, but because his heart is so full of self-giving love that in order for him to be fully God, in order for him to fully express who he is, he had to create beings that he could then empty himself to, give himself to, so that they could experience love and deep connection with him. God did not create on some capricious whim, but because he is the very embodiment of love, he said, I will make a fantastic universe. I will make beings who live within it. I will make the universe so incredible that they gain a sense of their perspective, that they're blown away by the beauty, the intricacy, and the power. And when they find themselves at the crossroads of that, that place of awestruck wonder and feeling like they are so unimportant, I will then find them and show them my personal love for them. The God who created did so out of love. And in love, he created everything that exists. Now, let me ask you, what kind of power, what kind of imagination, what kind of intricate knowledge would it take for some being to create the vast universe, and the complexities of life within it. I don't know what word adequately would describe the power, the imagination, and the knowledge of a being that could create everything that exists. I don't know if there's a word that fully expresses that. But the church down through the ages has used one word to kind of take a whack at it, to try to say it. And that word is almighty. I believe in God the Father, almighty, has all of the power, all of the imagination, all of the knowledge that it takes to create everything that exists. Hmm. Let me ask you another question. What's a reasonable response from an imperfect finite person like you and me to the infinite almighty God? What's a, what's a reasonable response? If, if, if a guy or a gal like you is going about life, runs into the God who made everything, what's the first thing you're going to do? What's the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth? What's, what's the, the, the idea that's suddenly going to rush upon your, your, your mind and your heart? I think that it's a reason, again, a reasonable thing for a human being who comes into contact with the Almighty God to feel a little bit afraid. To just realize there's, there's limitless power. There's an imagination that's, that's awe-inspiring. There's, there's knowledge that I will never fathom. And for me, suddenly, to not know exactly how to compose myself or what to say next or, or, or what's the, the right thing, the, the respectful thing to do for my heart to hit freak-out mode. Listen, uh, the corollary 1A to the first NAS freak-out policy is don't freak out over things like the word Catholic was on the screen, but freak out when you consider the notion of the almighty God of this universe. Your heart can, can walk right up there to the threshold of freak-out mode before the God and stand there or kneel there in wonder and in awe. He is the almighty God. And fear might be a reasonable response to that. Um, Just in case you're wondering where we got the word almighty, it does show up in the Bible, by the way. uh, Twice in the book of Genesis, God describes himself, identifies himself to uh, the crowd that's listening as God almighty. The next book, Exodus, he makes one more claim when he's standing before the people. I am God Almighty. Um, that that uh, the Hebrew 
word for almighty is really an incredible, incredible picture of this almighty God. You gotta get this. Because if you're standing in the place where you're of freak out mode, fear before this gigantic power, there is something that brings balance to the fear in your life. And it's knowing what the word almighty really means. Hebrew uh, term, if you've been around the, Christ, around the Christian world for 20, 30 years, you remember uh, we used to sing a song or two where we referred to God by this Hebrew name, El Shaddai. You guys remember that? It was bad music, but it's good theology, so I'll bring it up, okay? El Shaddai. And uh, the word El in Hebrew is the, the word for God. Not the proper name, but just in describing any God, the word for a God, El. Shaddai. Is, uh, is an interesting word. Because when, remember Hebrew word pictures? Here's the picture. When you take this back down to its, uh, to its origins, the word Shaddai means many-breasted. The many-breasted God. Okay, now listen. People who make uh, idols, you know how they're going to carve this, right? You've got the picture in your head. The many-breasted God. What does that have to do with might? This is the God who has the power and resources to nourish, provide, take care of, and raise to maturity all, all of his children. How much power does it take? How many people are on the planet right now? Seven billion-ish? Yeah. The El Shaddai has enough resources. He has enough knowledge. He has enough imagination. He has enough power, the resources that it takes to care for all of us. You realize that the people who are alive on the planet aren't the only people who ever existed, right? There have been billions who came before us. The God who reveals himself to us in the pages of the scripture said, I am the Lord Almighty, and the picture wasn't of crushing power. That's not how he chose to reveal himself. He said, no, no, no. If you want to know what my name is, Call me the provider God. I'm the God who provides. When we get to the New Testament, he, uh, he, he adds another weight to the balance. Because this first one, we've got Almighty, the, the power that created the universe. And then kind of holding it in balance there was this, this motherly picture, right? The many-breasted God. We get to the New Testament, he adds another description, And it's Jesus himself who says, you need to come to know God as Father. Oh, there's a a different picture of provision, a different feeling of provision, isn't there, between mom and dad. Which one's better? It's not even the right question, right? Uh, which, Which would you like, a mom or a dad? We all say a mom and a dad, right? This picture that is painted for us in the scriptures of the almighty God is one who, in maternal fashion, can provide and nourish and raise and grow. And who in the New Testament, in the Greek understanding, a more paternal understanding, is is a, a father who establishes authority over his household and protects all who would threaten it. And who then begins to provide the other things that a mother's milk cannot. The Almighty God. Powerful enough to create the universe. But wired by his his very being to nurture and take care of all of his children. Also stands as guard, protector, and the one who chiefly instills a sense of identity, who you are, to each of his children. Or at least to all who will put all their weight down on him. Trust him. Believe in him. And it's why the church has, for 1900 years, said, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. And listen, this God, if he's truly Almighty, he could overpower you, couldn't he? 
I mean, I'm 48. The, the, the years of my peak strength, they're in the rear view. Ask Todd. He watches me work out with the smallest weights possible. I'm strong as I used to be. But on my best day, at the peak of Cliff Purcellness, I wasn't a match for the breath of God. The God who can create the universe, who can supply everything that everybody needs, that God could overwhelm me with a mere decision. The God who has that incredible imagination that could picture the universe before he ever spoke it into being and the intricate knowledge of how to make everything just fit together so that life is sustained. That God, I can't beat him. I can't outwit him. I can't outfox him. That God could toy with me and torture me. And you. There's a bunch of you who are stronger than me, but you're not stronger than God. And there's a bunch of you who are smarter than me, but you're not going to outsmart God. And there isn't any of us or all of us put together who become the equal of God in this universe. And so if you want to look at this God, the Father Almighty, and understand only one part of his character, you're left in the place of fear because this God could toy with you and he could torture you and he could destroy you. If that's all you get to know about him, if you read part of this book only, you will be left in the place of fear that leaves you either cowering in his presence or fleeing from his presence altogether. And that's why it's important for us to understand as we begin this study of what Christians believe, that as we begin to confess our faith each week, that we begin with this phrase, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Knowing that Almighty means more than power. It means love. It means provision. It means care. It means motherly tenderness. I believe. I don't know everything. How are you going to measure God? I can't say that I know but I trust God, the Father Almighty. Do you? We're going to go on and describe him in greater detail in the weeks to come. And his son Jesus, the Holy Spirit as well. But I think, I think it's important that before we go any farther, maybe there's somebody today who says, you know what, I've heard enough to say... Um, I want to learn how to lean on this God. Friend, I, I can't tell you how to do that all, uh, you know, in, in two minutes. But I can give you the opportunity to talk to God today and say, I don't know much about you, but I like what I'm hearing. And I'm going to begin to lean on you today. To learn to trust you have faith. Christians have for uh, about half, well, well no, for, for uh, <laughs> just almost exactly the same amount of time that we've confessed this faith of ours together. We've also done one other thing in ritual fashion. We have taken bread and wine or grape juice and said these things symbolize for us the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He himself assigned the meaning to them and said, why don't you guys do this from time to time and remember who I am and remember the relationship that I have to offer. You can lean on me. You can put your full weight down on me. I won't fail you. And it's why today, again, like we have so many other times, we are going to now participate in what we call the Lord's Supper in the Church of the Nazarene, we, we, we have a, a significant difference with some other of our Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to focus in these weeks to come on the things we have in common, but there's one difference that I'm going to highlight every time that we serve the Lord's Supper, and it's this. We practice open communion here, not closed communion. 
Closed communion means this. There are churches, denominations that say, in order for you to participate in this very holy, special, sacred meal, we have to know your faith and your track record. So you have to be a member of our church, and you have to have been baptized by us so that we know your, your religious pedigree. And we will res- I, I will reserve to other groups the right to do that, but among the chief reasons that I am a part of the Church of the Nazarene is because we practice open communion. And that means that if you come here leaning in God's direction, just leaning in God's direction today, and you want to connect with him, and you want to join us in this meal, because what do families do? What do friends do? We eat together. Then you are free to do so without having to meet some pastor or some church board's uh, standards. Anybody who wants to connect with God can join us at the table where we just look to him and say, we're leaning on you. So I want to ask the communion teams to come. Um, for those of you who, who need to know these things, we also have gluten-free elements these days. We understand there's lots of folks with allergies. And so um, if you would just wave at uh, Pastor Bill here in a moment, we'll get the rest of the teams serving folks. But if you just wave at Pastor Bill and catch his eye, he would be glad to bring you uh, the, the um, gluten-free elements, Okay. I mentioned this is one of the things that we do in kind of ritual fashion, meaning that we repeat it because we think it's important. And whenever we serve this, we do it this way. We ask that everybody just hold the elements until everybody's been served so we can eat them together. But we remind ourselves of the truth behind all of this. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, the night that he was arrested, tortured, and uh, the next day tortured to death, he took these very common elements, bread and the fruit of the vine, and he assigned new meaning to them. He said to his first followers, it's a symbol of my body. My body is going to be broken for you. I'm going to be crucified. We'll talk more in coming weeks about what that's about, why crucified. But Jesus said, I'm going to give up my body so that you guys don't have to be punished. In case they thought it was just, uh, you know, the religious authorities were going to take him out in the alley and rough him up a little bit, he said, no, you have to understand, it's going to cost me my, my, my very life. My blood is going to be shed for you. And to the The culture he was speaking, blood also meant not just death, but a sacrifice that wipes away sin, that cleanses a person's conscience, and clears the path to the God Almighty. He said, this is my body, this is my blood. While the communion teams uh, finish up serving you, why don't you just take a moment to thank him for his provision?